For the last segment of our program, Dr. Rowan Chablowski discusses a theoretical case scenario I presented to him with a number of variations. To begin, we discuss an older woman with a HER2-positive tumor. This patient is a 70-year-old woman who looks much younger than 70, really very active, retired school teacher, lives with her husband, they travel all the time, a typical super healthy, super athletic retirees. This lady goes for a routine mammogram after having had a number of mammograms over the years and is found to have an abnormality. One thing leads to another. Bottom line, she has breast conservation and a sentinel node, and it turns out that she has a one centimeter ERPR negative, HER2 positive, infiltrating ductal cancer. Three sentinel lymph nodes are negative. So I want you to talk a little bit about how you would think through adjuvant therapy in this situation. As a physician, I'm interacting with this younger-than-appearing, very active woman who's found out that she has a relatively low stage, one centimeter, three-lymph node, sentinel node negative cancer, but one that is negative for estrogen and progesterone receptors and positive for HER2 overexpression. And let me just add one more sort of flavor to this, which is a couple of her friends have gotten chemotherapy for breast cancer and wasn't a very pleasant experience. And she knows that's going to be something you might consider not too happy about it, but if she has to have it, she'll do it. But if she could avoid it, she would love to avoid it. Yes. So this is an interesting case because it gives us a little bit of dichotomy. Just a few years ago, this person would be considered a low-risk patient and would be actually on some guidelines, even today, would be considered somebody who wouldn't need any adjuvant therapy. You know, if you just look at the guidelines of maybe three years ago, before the HER2 data. So this is someone who's going from no therapy being recommended, telling the person that they're at relatively favorable outcome status. And, you know, we'd look at one centimeter tumor. We'd say, well, without doing the calculations, maybe 10 to 12% 10-year recurrence risk. And we increase it 50% now for the HER2, and now we're talking 15 to 20% recurrence risk. You know, it's true. You're right. When I think about it, I think it was just the 2000 NIH Consensus Conference on Early Breast Cancer where they sort of came up with this one centimeter bar for maybe considering chemotherapy. That was just a few years ago. Yeah, and even now in the NCCN guideline, it still is one centimeter if you wouldn't have HER2 overexpression, which seems, of course to myself and maybe some other clinicians is kind of a high bar for my basis of discussions with women. So it gets down to what do we have for this kind of woman? And it gets us very quickly to the point where we are now at a place where we have options to be considered, but no data. So one thing that you could consider now that you have, but no data in adjuvant is hormonal therapy plus Herceptin. Now she was ER negative. Oh, ER negative. I'm sorry. Okay. So the issue is without the HER2 positivity, she might be a candidate for which some physicians would not offer chemotherapy, but I would discuss it with the patient in any case. Now with this HER2 positivity, I think we just tell her that you have this moderately high risk of recurrence. A 70-year-old with a life expectancy is going to be considerable, maybe 15 years, something like that. I could say that you have a, you know maybe one in five, one in six chance of having a recurrence, which will take years, but as we understand now represents an incurable condition. And we have a therapy that can reduce risk of recurrence by 50%, adding the Herceptin to it. 
You know, one of the things about this case I tried to structure deliberately is the question of how does age impact competing causes of mortality that you have to consider? And at what age, even if a patient appears to be healthy, would you expect their survival to be so limited that maybe you wouldn't even be worrying about a cancer? Is there an age that sort of pops in your head in that regard? Yeah, there is. And we know that the older you get, the less benefit you get from the therapy, just because actuarially competing causes of death, regardless of your current condition, you know, play a bigger role. And certainly in the 80s, it's about 50-50 chance of dying. The oncology standard had been like 65 for these trials. And I think it just seems the times have passed that cutoff. I mean, 65-year-olds in the old days put themselves at chair rest pretty much. But now I see in many oncologists, see many people just like the patient you're describing here who are fully active and wouldn't consider taking a lesser therapy on that basis. So I think for me, 80 becomes the age where I start to consider different options or say that since you're going to get half as much benefit, is this worthwhile to offer to you? Now I'm going to throw in another variable here, which is we'll say that she's had well-controlled hypertension for the last 10 years. Other than that, no other types of medical problems. If this woman were to sit down with you and say, okay, what is my chance of developing a cancer relapse if I do nothing? And how will that be changed by various options? What kind of numbers would you throw out at her? Yeah, I would probably start with a number of around 15% for her recurrence risk and say that with chemotherapy of some kind together with her septin, and maybe we would be able to reduce it by about half. So, you know, kind of 7%, one in what, I don't know, eight or nine chance of developing a fatal disease and probably the next five years for most people with HER2 overexpressing tumors. And in terms of the clinical research that sort of supports that concept that we can cut the risk in half by using chemotherapy and Herceptin in this situation, can you kind of provide a little bit of an overview of what the trials were that looked at this and what they saw? Yeah, so there were a couple of American trials that have been reported together involving adriocytoxin first together with Taxol with or without Herceptin and the Taxol given either on a weekly or every three-week schedule. And those both reduced by 50% the recurrence risk, had a survival benefit. A trial in Europe giving a variety of chemotherapies first and then the Herceptin following the chemotherapy had about a 40% reduction in risk of recurrence. I think two very, very interesting studies, the FinHair study, which is a small study, 200-some patients, just gave nine weeks of Herceptin with chemotherapy. It was either Taxotere or Navalbine weekly, in addition to the kind of effect chemotherapy without the Herceptin, and had the same kind of substantial reduction in risk of recurrence. And finally, most interestingly, perhaps, is George Sledge's abstract at San Antonio, where another one of these 234 patient populations, it was really a toxicity study looking at giving the Taxol with Herceptin first followed by AC. So you get the Herceptin going right away. And then the randomization was to 52 weeks of Herceptin or not. And so it wasn't obviously powered for recurrence, but it showed the same kind of potential benefit. And I should say that actually, I have considered that in some of these patients who are both borderline for maybe a cardiac risk for Herceptin and or have these patients who have these borderline overexpressions, which we don't know what to make of. So that might be something that would be in the mix here. And then, of course, most recently, we had the data from the BCIRG6 study suggesting that one can get the same potential benefit while avoiding the anthracycline, which could be certainly important, especially in a 70-year-old woman. And those trials substituted carboplatinum and taxotere compared to AC to taxotere and saw really the same benefit with less side effects for the regimen that didn't include an anthracycline. 
Now, if this woman were to ask you, you know, what kind of side effects or potential risks are of taking chemotherapy with trastuzumab, and how does that differ with the different chemotherapy regimens that could be given? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of cardiac, there doesn't seem to be too much difference unless we go with one of the short regimens. And so that the nine-week regimen, at least it's currently reported, has much less in the way of, you know, cardiac risk, but substantially less data on efficacy. And I think the other regimens that involve Herceptin, which are the AC to Taxol, AC to Taxotere, Carboplatinum, and Taxotere, are all non-trivial, especially for older individuals. I think my experience is that many older individuals have a tough time working their way through Taxotere therapy. So that would be an issue in terms of general kind of fatigue and just kind of nausea and vomiting and just the nail changes. And there's a variety of other things that just people have trouble with. What about the risk of cardiac damage at the non-anthracycline compared to the anthracycline regimen? Yeah, so it looks like in the NSABP trial where we have the biggest experience, it looks like about 4%. So that's a lot. Like 1 in 25 women were developing clinical congestive heart failure, and a substantial number couldn't finish one year's worth of therapy. Seem to be less, though the data follow-up is less, in the European trials where they gave the Herceptin after the chemotherapy, and substantially less in the limited reports we have of those nine-week regimens. What about the TCH, the docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab, compared to the anthracyclines? Yeah, it looked to be similar to the anthracyclines. I know there's a lot of debate is, does that mean it's the same as the anthracycline-containing regimen or not? And I think some people would argue that we don't have a clear signal to say that it's as risky for the heart as anthracycline without Herceptin is, but I think that data is interpreted both ways by different clinicians. Now, when women do develop heart failure as a result of receiving adjuvant trastuzumab chemotherapy, what's sort of the natural course? What happens? Yeah, we talk a lot about it being reversible, and I think the ejection fraction is largely reversible, but the jury is still out on the clinical course of the development of clinical congestive heart failure. In one report from the NSABP experience, where of the 34 women who developed clinical congestive heart failure, six months later, apparently, it was about 31 of them were still under the care of a cardiologist. So maybe the cardiologist care, you know, that could just be a cautious thing, but it's a little bit different to say you're still under the care of cardiologists receiving cardiac medications than to say you had a problem that went away completely. So we don't know the long-term side effects in that regard. Now, this woman, like a lot of women, is not anxious to receive chemotherapy, understandably. What do we know about giving trastuzumab in the adjuvant situation like this without chemotherapy? Yeah, there really isn't any good data. And the single agent experience for Herceptin response frequencies in the 20s, you know, in Dr. Vogel's experience, it seems that a lot of the benefit is together with chemotherapy, perhaps even short-term kind of chemotherapy. So generally, I wouldn't consider Herceptin alone as something to offer someone. I think at least with the combination of short-term chemotherapy and Herceptin, you have at least a couple trials, though the numbers are small, to actually have a good signal that you're going to get efficacy for that regimen. Now, this woman has a tumor that's node negative, and as you point out, you know, a lot of these people in the past wouldn't get chemotherapy. We see people with that 50% reduction or relapse rate with trastuzumab pretty interested in using trastuzumab. What about in the smaller tumors, even smaller than this, under a centimeter, half a centimeter, where they're HER2 positive? How do you approach that? Yeah, I think one of the things is I think we're all struggling to come up with maybe a cut point for where we shouldn't give Herceptin or Transtuzumab. 
and beginning to see data sets now where people look at these small tumors with their HER2 overexpressing. And when you look at the recurrence risk, it may well be that there are no good risk HER2 overexpressing kind of tumors. And some clinicians would say there wouldn't be any size that they would not consider Herceptin. And I'm kind of getting there. I mean, we had a three millimeter tumor that was HER2 overexpressing last week that we kind of struggled and talked about it and then finally kind of didn't offer it. And I was on a panel the next weekend, and that almost identical case came up, and a couple people on the panel were, say, they're treating everyone now. So I think I'm approaching that. I think it's a fair question to say, show me a data set that has HER2 overexpressing patients that do well. And I think we're imputing the size is going to dominate, but I think we don't know that. I mentioned to you that this program is going to be for nurses. What are some of the signs and symptoms that maybe a nurse should sort of be on the lookout for in a patient who's on Herceptin, particularly in terms of maybe trying to pick up somebody early who might be having a cardiac problem? Yeah, I think what we're talking about are left ventricular ejection fraction dysfunction. And so basically what you're looking for are the signs and symptoms of clinical congestive heart failure. So which would be, and again, we see that unrelated to congestive heart failure, but a peripheral edema, for instance, that you could see with some of these regimens, but that could be a sign. Shortness of breath, waking up at night, short of breath, decreased exercise tolerance. I think it would be good to ask people, how was your activity? And again, that gets conflicted here because the fatigue associated with some of these regimens puts some of these women at bed rest. And so they may not be able to tell if they have a decreased exercise tolerance. But to try to inquire about whether somebody's activity is maintaining the same or not, I think would be very important. Those could be the earliest signs. So bottom line, again, getting back to this 70-year-old woman in really good health and good condition, what do you think the most likely recommendation you'd make to her? Well, I'd start with what I consider now, at least my standard, which is the carboplatinum docetaxel combination with Herceptin, and then talk about that some people will have difficulty tolerating that, but we don't know until you try it. And so I think what my experience has been, some of these older individuals I'll offer that to will have trouble and want to stop the docetaxel. And I'll do that and continue just with the carboplatinum. And so that would be my kind of first approach. If she didn't like the sound of the side effects, then I would be happy to recommend a short course for you only giving the equivalent of nine weeks of trastuzumab therapy. Now, we know from our patterns of care studies that right now in the United States, the most common chemotherapy combination that's utilized includes an anthracycline, usually AC, followed by a taxane, either docetaxel or paclitaxel with the trastuzumab. However, since that presentation you mentioned in December 2006, showing that it looks like the TCH might be just as helpful without the anthracycline, we're seeing more of that, but still not the most common regimen used. What is it in this particular case that's getting you to recommend or think about TCH rather than an anthracycline? Yeah, I think maybe on the West Coast where a lot of the BCIRG influence and certainly Dr. Slayman is right up the street from my place. You know, we've been around that regimen for a longer period of time. More of us has experience with that regimen. And so when we saw this new result, it was a kind of a natural extension of what we'd expected. And so we didn't have really an adoption mode to go through. I think that explains part of the difference. But I look at it, I said, well, the outcome is the same, even though it's a short follow-up at two years. 
But when you look at congestive heart failure and MDS acute leukemia risk, it looked like you were 24 versus 4 ahead. So I said, well, even if I'm wrong about the recurrence for another year, I still think I'll be even. And I'm very concerned about the course of the clinical congestive heart failure, as we talked about. So it was easy, once we saw those results, to go right to that regimen. I know many people who would use dose-dense as their base may not be, especially in this patient, so anxious to go to that regimen because experience probably would be that a dose-dense regimen, at least from patient-perceived side effects, could be easier than a docetaxel carboplatinum regimen. And that dose dense would be, again, AC and paclitaxel given every two weeks, which is another regimen that's commonly utilized. I guess one of the things about the TCH regimen, though, is that the docetaxel is used at 75 milligrams per meter squared, which a lot of the other regimens, like when you use it alone, it's 100. How much of a difference does that make in terms of toxicity and side effects? Yeah, it makes a pretty substantial difference. I think that it is just a harder all-around regimen to go to 100. I mean, you can certainly manage the myosuppression with growth factor support. And for the people that tolerate those agents, then that can remove that from the activity. But I think certainly individuals could tell if they're on 100 versus 75 of docetaxel. Now, having said that, we end up having that kind of controversial efficacy matchup between the TC without the Herceptin versus carboplatinum and docetaxel one at 75 and the other one at 100, and showing that actually you may not need the carboplatinum if you give the taxotier at 100. I know that's a controversial result. That is, again, to repeat it, docetaxel 100 in advanced breast cancer versus carboplatinum at 6 AUC plus 75 of docetaxel, showing kind of equivalence in a trial not really powered for equivalence. So that's part of the question. Okay, well, let's backtrack back through this case again, and I'm going to represent it to you, and I'm going to change two variables. And I'm trying to kind of point out how both ER and HER2 is having such a dramatic effect in terms of decisions. So we're going to say it's the same lady, 70 years old again, still in very good health, still with a one centimeter node negative tumor, except in this situation, the tumor is ER and PR positive and HER2 negative. And, you know, maybe even before you comment on how you would manage a patient like this, maybe you can comment a little bit on the issue about HER2 and ER measurement, because as this case is going to demonstrate how important those are, how reliable are the assays that are being obtained right now for these factors in the community setting? Yeah, the reliability of these assays for hormone receptors and HER2 overexpression is emerging as a considerable issue. We switched from density gradient centrifugation to IHC, immunohistochemistry determination, without any standardization, went from multiple standardized labs to really none. And I think Craig Allred pointed out that there were major problems associated with that, and people are getting back to trying to standardize things, but we're really pretty far from having completely standardized assays. And I know some referring physicians who get outside referrals who are hormone receptor negative will repeat the test at their institution in all cases, or send it to Craig Allred or some laboratory that you have great confidence in, in terms of their quality assurance. And I think the same issue remains for her too, in terms of IHC and who do you do fish in. So there's a lot of controversies about this. And I think it's incumbent for physicians to identify a laboratory that they're confident in the values they're going to receive. Okay, so let's go to this situation where now the tumor is ER positive and PR positive, but HER2 negative. Can you talk a little bit about, this is a very common situation, one of the most common scenarios that we see right now, sort of what the issues are there in terms of planning on therapy? So someone with a low 
stage ER positive HER2 negative tumor, as you say, is a very common condition and one that would probably not exceed many clinicians' threshold for offering chemotherapy. We'd say in this circumstance, you may end up having this 10 to 12% risk of recurrence. We could anticipate a substantial reduction with adjuvant hormonal therapy, where if you think that tamoxifen will reduce it by 40 to 50%, then you get, if you switched it, instead of giving tamoxifen, gave an aromatase inhibitor, you might get another 25%. So you may be talking about 60% risk reduction, left with a 4% or so target. It's interesting that even with this active woman, I probably would talk about a non-anthracycline chemotherapy, something like TC, to see if someone was interested in that. But certainly, this patient easily could just receive an aromatase inhibitor like an astrazole and be expected to do well. Another option would be letrozole, of course. Now, what about using the Oncotype DX assay in this situation? Yeah, that's another area that's emerging. There's an assay that will measure the activity of 16 cancer-related genes and five genes that are background genes, looking at things like the ER pathway, the HER2 pathway, proliferation genes, attempts to predict benefit in receptor-positive patients with tamoxifen use. And it did a pretty good job as a predictor in the overall population. Okay, so... Let's just say for the sake of argument that she had come to you for a second opinion, she's already seen a doctor who got a recurrent score and the recurrent score is high. Would you take that into account and what you'd be doing? I would. And the reason is it's kind of like tumor markers, you know, traditional tumor markers that can be used in breast cancer. I don't generally use them at all. But if I see a patient who has markers, then I think you have to deal with it. I mean, I think that the comment that I would say, oh, I don't use markers, so I'm not going to consider this value, or I don't use Oncotype DX, so I'm not going to consider this recurrence score, I think that's probably not fair to the patient and would be very confusing. So I would integrate that into my discussion with the patients. I said, here's one more signal that you could be at recurrence risk. Here's why we may not be sure that that's the right answer. So putting all these things together, you came to the conclusion you wanted to give her chemo. Can you talk a little bit more about what the options would be that you would sort through in terms of what type of chemo? You mentioned the TC regimen. Can you talk about the different options and sort of how you'd sort them through? Yes, it's a very difficult time for chemotherapy choices, I believe, because almost all regimens are based on anthracycline, one of our most active agents. And we saw at San Antonio this year, this meta-analysis suggesting that the only patients who benefited looking historically back at those old series were those who weren't overexpressing for HER2. So that means that maybe we're not getting benefit from anthracyclines, which clearly at low frequency, but still can cause fatal congestive heart failure and MDS or acute leukemia. So all the anthracycline regimens were always a little reluctant to be using in the HER2 non-overexpressing patients just now. And that doesn't leave us with many options. We have the TC versus AC regimen compared in a little under a thousand patients. And that has become my off-protocol low-risk base. And I don't see much reason for switching out of anthracycline in that setting. I know other individuals would go to a dose-dense regimen of a variety of different kinds. You know, AC, some people even using dose-dense AC times four, for instance, or the conventional AC times four followed by Taxol times four. Can you talk a little bit more about the TC regimen? This is different than the other TCH in that it is still docetaxel, but now it's cyclophosphamide. You mentioned that there was a study done. What did they see in terms of disease-free survival and also side effects and toxicity? Yeah, so that was done largely by U.S. oncology, and a little under 1,000 patients with early-stage resected breast cancer randomized to TC 600 of cytoxin, 
75 of docetaxel, so not 175, versus AC in traditional doses of adriamycin 60 per meter squared and cytoxin 600 per meter squared. There was about a third fewer relapse-free survival events for women on the TC compared to the AC arm, and it was impressively seen in all categories, that is, in receptor positive, receptor negative. So it was really seen across the board, which is really a very substantial improvement. And for many of us, a surprising result since a combination of anthracycline and taxane wasn't better than AC. So that was a very surprising result one way or another. And so I think the people who don't like the TC combination will always comment on that other trial and saying, well, how did this turn out to be so good? But it looks like a very good result for TC. And there's some differences in side effects, but our experience has been that TC is a little easier to tolerate regimen, not substantially so, but just a little easier to tolerate regimen. You're given 75 a docetaxel, not 100. I think most of the patients, even the older patients, can get through it because it's only four cycles. Easier in terms of what specifically? Well, I think in terms of fatigue, which is kind of one thing, nail changes, myalgia. So just kind of general not feeling well. Okay, so we talked about chemotherapy in this situation, but the other issue is hormonal therapy. Yeah, and I should emphasize that. Of course, that would be the major force of the discussion. I would emphasize the women. I think most of the benefit is going to be with the hormone therapy. The chemotherapy she can consider as an option, and I would tell her that a substantial number of women wouldn't want or think it's needed, but I would emphasize that the hormone therapy is going to be doing the heavy lifting in this regimen. And can you talk about the options in terms of hormonal therapy that you might consider in this situation? Yes, in a postmenopausal woman, we have guidelines now from NCCN, ASCO, and St. Gallen, all indicating that aromatase inhibitors should be part of hormone receptor positive postmenopausal patients' management. None of them indicate which approach they favor, which the options based on clinical trials are tamoxifen for five years followed by aromatase inhibitor, tamoxifen for two to three years and switching, or upfront aromatase inhibitor versus tamoxifen use. I really favor strongly the aromatase inhibitor first approach, not only on the basis of efficacy in the trials that we have, where we're seeing 20-some percent fewer recurrence-free survival events in both the attack in the big 198 trial, but also in terms of the side effect profile in that a lot of clinicians surprisingly underplay the three life-threatening side effects of tamoxifen, endometrial cancer, strokes, and pulmonary emboli. And people will say, well, I never saw an endometrial cancer, so I'm not going to be worried about it. But I think those are real events. And we had talked about this before, endometrial cancer having a 20% three-year mortality risk. So it's worse to get endometrial cancer than to get a breast cancer in terms of five-year you know, survival. And the aromatase inhibitors have substantially fewer endometrial cancers and probably carry no risk and less venous vascular events. And at least for anastrozole, there were fewer strokes, 2% versus 2.8%. So especially since I go back to the Women's Health Initiative experience where estrogen plus progestin use, which you know increased the stroke risk, doubled dementia risk just with three years of treatment for women 65 years of age or older. So I think that stroke risk in a 70-year-old, which would have a higher base regardless of their activity, would be a compelling reason for me to not want to start on tamoxifen first. What would you go through in terms of potential side effects and toxicities of AIs compared to tamoxifen? Yeah, so we start with tamoxifen. The life-threatening toxicities would be endometrial cancer, arterial and venous vascular effects, which would be strokes, TIAs, and DVTs, and PEs. There are also patient-perceived side effects would be hot flashes and vaginal discharge. 
On the other side, the aromatase inhibitors don't have the endometrial cancer risk as much of the thromboembolic disease risk for venous side. And like I said, anastrozole may as well not have an effect for strokes compared to tamoxifen. But the cost is arthralgias increased and also bone issues in terms of fracture risk. Now, in terms of arthralgias, it's interesting when you look at the difference between, it looks like all the aromatase inhibitors cause about the same increment in arthralgia complaints, which is about in the 6% range. In the clinic, I think we're impressed that that's probably an underestimate of the number of people that really do have kind of problems. And I look at maybe, oh, 20 some percent of the patients on aromatase inhibitor will bring forward a complaint. About 10% will really have a difficult time of it, and a couple percent just can't go on no matter kind of what. I think the bone health issue now with bone mineral density screening and early intervention and more knowledge about what the risks are really more represents a manageable condition. So I use that less of an issue in terms of deciding what kind of therapy to bring forward. Okay, so now I'm going to bump this case up a couple years and say that instead of seeing her at first diagnosis, I'm going to say that this woman was seen by another physician and was actually treated with chemotherapy followed by tamoxifen. And now it's two and a half years later and she's moved into your area and she's transferred her care over to you and she comes in to see you and you evaluate her and she's been on tamoxifen for two and a half years. What would you do at that point? Yes, those would be the patients that I would switch immediately over to an aromatase inhibitor. I would have a discussion about how they were doing on the first regimen, but I'd say here's an agent aromatase inhibitors that in this exact setting has been proven to be better, and I would want you to take it. And interestingly, you gave me an easy one with two and a half years follow-up, but I would do the same thing if I saw the patient at six months or one year because I'm impressed with the front-loading of some of the side effects, that is the venous vascular effects. We just saw that updated by Jack Cusack at San Antonio this year, you know, DVTs occurring in the first couple years. And the other thing we saw was that the endometrial thickness associated with tamoxifen persists after stopping the therapy. So I'm not waiting. There will not be a trial of one year switching. So as soon as I would see a patient, I would switch them to what I would view to be superior agents. All right. Well, I'll try to make it a little more challenging. Now we'll say that she's been on tamoxifen for five years. And now she comes in again. You see her for the first time. She's just finishing her fifth year of tamoxifen. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we're all trying to struggle with who needs prolonged hormonal therapy. And I think the issue is related to recurrence risk. And one shorthand way that I get around the issue is that it looks like it's pretty clear that even from the higher risk patients, your risk of recurrence will be about, use up about half your risk of recurrence in the first five years. It's probably going to be even less for the low risk patients because they won't have as big a peak. We know that, you know. And so anybody that you'd think would meet a threshold for treatment initially would still have that same risk threshold at five years, to my way of thinking. Now, we know that tamoxifen has a carryover effect, and we're not sure about the aromatase inhibitors, but I would think that if I had enough risk to want to treat initially, then I have enough risk to want to chat about treatment you know, after five years. Most women are receptive to that, and it's interesting. I have a difficult time trying to reconcile that observation with the data on adherence to hormonal agents, which again is getting a fair amount of attention now for both the tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. And Partridge has a couple presentations. I just did a review article on this topic where it looks like in some cases, 20% of women aren't taking any tamoxifen after one year. And in some of these large kind of drug disappearance studies suggest that only half the patients are taking it in the fourth year. So it's an interesting challenge to reconcile long duration therapy with the fact that half the patients are choosing to take shorter duration therapy than we even initially prescribed. 
It's interesting. You know, we've done surveys of physicians, oncologists specifically, nurses, as well as patients, and asked all three groups to what extent do they think adherence is an issue in long-term hormonal therapy. And the docs say, no, it's no problem. The patients take their medicine. The nurses say the same thing. And the patients say, yeah, we take our medicine. There's a little bit of a disconnect between these papers that are coming out saying that people don't take it versus sort of what people believe. How sure are we that these people really aren't taking their medicine? How sure is the data that's out there? Well, I think the data is probably pretty good. I mean, you know, you end up having these big databases that are able to track, you know, the companies are able to track prescription use by individuals, and then they report it as group data. And looking at it, even in relatively close settings, it appears to be the case. I think we're all impressed with the data that's been quoted for, I don't have firsthand knowledge about how good it is, but for Gleevec, for CML patients, where it looks like, you know, the average use is, you know, people aren't taking it for maybe 100 days in the first year, where basically you have this in-your-face life-threatening condition that would certainly, you know, with high probability result in death in a few years. And then even then people are not taking it a third of the time. So I think there is tension between are the results believable? I find the results believable myself, but I agree that there is tension between those results. And I think the first thing will be that the clinicians may not want to do anything unless they actually believe the results and think there's going to be an association with the adverse outcome. When you're at a presentation where you have a chance for interaction, universally the physicians say that their patients take their medication. And so there is a bit of a disconnect there. How do you respond if a patient says, gee, I really have a hard time paying with this medicine. I've already taken treatment for five years. Do I really need it? Yeah, so we'll go over the numbers and see what, you know, people react differently to the numbers. And we emphasize that those are group numbers and they're not her numbers. And, you know, as an individual, you either recur or you don't recur. I ask them to think about which they would think about worse because they'll never know the right answer. They either recurred and took or didn't take the medication. So would you feel worse if you took the medication knowing it didn't do you any good? Or would you feel worse if you had a recurrence and thought you might have prevented it by taking the medication? And I think once people answer that question for themselves, they can confidently move forward with their decision because they're discounting it in advance in a certain it's just kind of it sounds like talking to a financial advisor you know when he says well how much risk will you tolerate would you be happier with losing 50 percent of your assets or missing a 30 percent increase and i think different people will address that same question differently all right let's flip the situation a little bit more challenging and say she receives her chemo gets five years of tamoxifen but then has been off therapy for three years now she moves into your area, comes in, just a routine follow-up. She hasn't had any endocrine treatment in three years. How would you approach that situation? Well, I would talk about the MA17 data, and Paul Goss and others have updated that result where they re-offered everyone. This was a study looking at five years of tamoxifen for clinical indication of early-stage breast cancer patients. There was a randomization to letrozole versus placebo. They stopped the trial early because there was benefit. But then they went back and offered randomization to the patients who had the placebo, and they still saw, even with an average three-year gap, still saw a substantial benefit. Now, having said that, my experience has been when MA17 first came out, we just offered it as a routine to the patients coming in. There was early data. We weren't sure of the results. So we didn't call the patients in, but when they came in for their visits, so the patients would have come in over three months, six months later, and it wasn't like we called them in. And we tell them about the data. And my experience was that after a year, if they were off a year, they would say, I like coming here, talking with you. You know, it's kind of fun, but I'm done with my breast cancer and I'm not taking any. We had almost no one go on after a year. And I think what happens is, Many of these women have a switch in their head that says, I 
don't have breast cancer anymore. I'm not at risk of breast cancer. I'm going on. And it varies from women to women, but I think many of the women make that judgment. They say, I'm done with the cancer. And you can talk about the data, but, and maybe they don't understand the data any better <laughs> in other circumstances, but here they're certainly able to discount any information we provide and say, I'm done with my cancer. So for the patient, though, who doesn't have you know, a particular aversion to be taking treatment, is asking you sort of what's your best recommendation? Again, one centimeter, no negative. What do you think most likely you'd recommend in this patient who's eight years out? Now, that patient is getting close to being not too much benefit, I would think. And so everybody's got a different cutoff. My cutoff isn't node positive versus node negative, but this is a small tumor, and I might not offer additional therapy after that period of time. Okay, we'll flip back to one more scenario, which is we'll go back to her finishing five years of endocrine therapy, but let's assume that this was an aromatase inhibitor that she got up front, which you said is what you would give her if you had seen her in the beginning. Let's assume she takes the aromatase inhibitor for five years, her bones are fine, she's not having any problems with arthralgias. What would you do when she hits the five-year point? Yeah, I know there isn't clinical data, but I am offering women continuing aromatase inhibitors, and I think we're going to have a tough time answering this question. I look at the existing trials. NSABP, I know, is doing, you know, they all have this base where you have some selection, but they have five years of hormone therapy, which could be an AI, and they're randomizing to AIs versus not, you know, kind of placebo-controlled more than five years. ABCSG, Austrian Breast Cancer Group 16, has got the same base of five years of prior hormone therapy. They're randomizing to two years of anastrozole versus five years of anastrozole. And the International Breast Cancer Study Group, not to be outdone if you want your favorite you know, standard regimen, has five years of prior hormone therapy, and they're randomizing to five years of an AI or five years of A&I with a three-month interruption per year to let the estrogen kind of come back. So their base has to be, you have to say, well, if you have to choose, maybe their base would be 10 years of an AI. So when you have these three trials going out using different kind of durations, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get at a definitive answer. And maybe the prevention trials that are placebo-controlled, which might give us a little clear signal about the side effects compared to placebo, might answer that question. You know, there's IBIS-2, which is anastrozole versus placebo placebo and otherwise healthy postmenopausal women. And we're involved with MAP3, which is exemestane versus placebo. And those two will give us toxicity profiles for aromatase inhibitors against placebo. Now we have three aromatase inhibitors currently available, anastrozole, letrozole, and exemestane. Can you kind of contrast the difference between the three and how you utilize the three of them in your own practice? Yeah, so two of the agents, anastrozole and letrozole, or Arimidex and Femara are non-steroidal aromatase inhibitors, and exemestane or aromacin, the trade name is a steroidal aromatase inhibitor. It was felt at one time that the steroidal nature might make a difference in side effects in terms of bone health and hot flashes, but that really, in terms of the clinic, hasn't exactly panned out. But I think there's still interest in that question. We have first-line data compared to tamoxifen just for anastrozole and letrozole with longer follow-up in the attack study with anastrozole, somewhat shorter, now 51-month follow-up with letrozole. Looks like efficacy is the same. There's a question whether there's a difference in side effects. I think the only clear difference that I see so far is that, and maybe the numbers are small, but anastrozole has fewer strokes in its study, 2 versus 2.8, and 
in the big 198 trial with letrozole, that isn't seen. The stroke incidence is the same. Cardiac issue is a little complicated because in the MA17 trial, comparing letrozole to placebo, there's absolutely no cardiac signal at all. And yet there was a significantly more, but the numbers are really small, of three, four, and five cardiac side effects in the big 198 trial. So I'm not sure exactly if that's a real issue or not. And exemestane has no data in the first-line setting at present. And again, the side effect profile is pretty similar. All those three, again, exemestane not having a stroke decrease.